Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. Last week was a momentous week. Last week we were in Parshat Yitro, uh, and even though we didn't do it, uh, the Israelites got Torah, right, last week. <laughs> they got the Ten Commandments, so we. which we see last week in the text, and we go immediately from this height of this moment of revelation, we go immediately uh, in the next Parsha into a collection of random seeming laws. So we don't just stop at the Ten Commandments, that those are not for us the only ones. And for throughout Jewish history, it's actually been a conversation. It's actually been a concern of the rabbis that we not look at the Ten Commandments as somehow being, okay, those are the ones I need to pay attention to. And the rest, you know, we have some kind of a relationship to, but not so much of a relationship to, right? They were very concerned about that. The Ten Commandments used to be part of the uh, liturgy and it got removed, as part of the liturgy because the rabbis were concerned that somebody would come into synagogue and hear the Ten Commandments as part of the liturgy and go, okay, I got this, right? There's the big 10. If I can like just kind of figure out how to live right my life in light of those 10, I'm good. I'm living a Jewish life. And they were very, very concerned about that. Because how many do we have according to the rabbis? How many commandments? 613. That's how you live your life as a Jew. 613 commandments, not 10. There are 603 more than, the, than 10. Uh, and so, and I think, I mean, obviously we all come down to the main observances of our lives. We all come down to deciding what are the really important things? What are the big things? Um, what do we really care about? What do we want to order our lives by? Of course we do that. But I think the instinct of the rabbis is a good one. Uh, that when we just focus on a few things, we, we can easily... Uh, we can easily gloss over little things that a life is made of. So for instance, for the rabbis, not speaking Lashon Hara, not speaking ill about other people, not spreading gossip was one of the most important mitzvot. It's not in the Big Ten. It was one of the most important for the rabbis. And if we think about it, you've heard me say it before, but like if we think about it, we, we talk gossip all the time. If we only pay attention to those huge issues, we lose, according to the rabbis, what it means to really live a life of gentleness and respect and morality and values and ethics. And if you think about it, pe- think about the people you admire the most in the world or have admired the most in your life. And, and they're not generally about huge things. The people you admire the most are generally people who are careful with what they say. They're careful about how they treat people. They're careful in the everyday moments that it's very easy to overlook if you're focusing on don't kill somebody. All right, some days don't kill somebody is really, really hard. (laughs) Really hard. I totally understand. I get it, especially when you live with teenagers. Exactly. So I'm not saying those aren't important, right? What I'm saying is I think that the rabbis, and I'm obviously teeing up Parshat Mishpatim here, um, the rabbis really felt that living a good life, living the life of a person who, who is living a life reflective of Jewish values and morals and ethics really comes down to the small stuff a lot of the times. Um, all right, so we are getting here a very typical ancient Near Eastern law code. This is a typical law code in, in the ancient Near Eastern style, not in our style. In our style, we would group laws together how? How would you group laws together? By? Subject. Subject. 
All right, we're going to talk about healthcare regulation, right? And so we get all the laws pertaining to the provision of healthcare. We're going to talk about child minority protection. So now we're going to have all the laws pertaining to you know to uh, someone who's a minor. I didn't mean minorities. I meant minors. Um, that is not how an ace, uh, Near Eastern law code is organized. So you're going to look at this and go, "What? That's okay. We're this is not our way of usually um, organizing things. That's fine. We just need to appreciate it on its own terms. This is very common in the ancient Near East. It's associative, right? A law that you have might remind you of another case that's similar, right? And you know, or, or right. So it's a re- in 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 the compiler's mind, they are related. Not in our Western way of categorizing things. They are not. All right, let's start. These are the rules that you shall set before them. When you acquire a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years. In the seventh year, he shall go free without payment. If he came single, he shall leave single. If he had a wife, his wife shall leave with him. If his master gave him a wife and she has borne him children, the wife and her children shall belong to the master and he shall leave alone. But if the slave declares, I love my master, and my wife and children, I do not wish to go free. His master shall take him before God. He shall be brought to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall then remain his slave for life. Okay. Yeah. All right, are we having problems finding where we are? No. No. 21, verse 1 mm-hmm. of the book of Exodus, yes? Chapter 21. What page? It was on 429, now we're on 431, page 431. 431 in the green. Okay. The Israelites just got Torah last week. Now we're getting a continuation of the law. Tell me about the Hebrews and their experience recently. They were just liberated from slavery. And now we're getting legislation about slaves, about slavery. In the to the modern reader, we'd be like, "Uh, wait a minute, isn't there kind of a problem here?" Like, we're just talking about liberating the Hebrews from slavery, and the first laws we have are laws about when you own slaves. Okay. This is not the modern world. But this is very remarkable because, I mean, it's, um, to me, this is a clear indication that human mankind forgets who they are very easily. So they need to be reminded how to treat others. We forget pretty quickly what it is to suffer, right? And so we are quick to, right? inflict suffering on other people. So this is completely where Torah is coming from. This is written by people who owned slaves. This is written by a society that lived among the other cultures that did not understand a world without slavery. There was no such thing. This is written by people who had slaves, who had always had slaves in the ancient Near East. You had to have slaves. How else was somebody supposed to pay off their debts? How else was somebody who went bankrupt supposed to eat? You became an indentured servant. We call it slavery. We immediately associate that with American, the American experience of slavery, which is one of the most horrifying in the history of humankind. Mm -hmm. It is not what we're talking about here. Okay? So um, we as Americans should be ashamed, ashamed of what we have based on the degradation of other people. That is not what we're talking about here. It's an economic model. It's an economic system that we don't have to like. And good news is we don't have to do it. (laughs) But they did. So the question is, you can do it one of two ways. I have indentured servants living in my house. I can treat them however I like. Thank you very much. Or 
or mm-hmm. labor rights mm-hmm. are given to the laborer because you were slaves yourself. Mm-hmm. Don't you ever, Miss Busy, get so up on your high horse as a slave owner that you think you got to third by hitting a triple. You were walked. <laughs> so don't you ever forget the experience of the slave as you deal with people who are entrusted to your care in your home. And it's interesting because um, they talk about Hebrew slaves. They don't say, now go, a- go out and when you get another race or another ethnicity or another somebody of a, of a different religion and then make them your slaves. They did that too. <laughs> Just in this part. After war. <laughs> if you went to After war, war yeah, well, you, sure. the victims, the, the, the ones who lost become your property. Aren't there rules here also about the ones who lost and how they should be treated elsewhere in the Torah? Of course. All right. So let's look what's happening here. These are the mishpatim. Mishpat actually means justice. So this is the just, this is the collection of things that you need to do to be a just society in relationship to the issue of Hebrew slaves. Here we're dealing with a fellow Israelite, an Ivri, an Eved Ivri, a servant that is Ivri, Hebrew. If you acquire a Hebrew slave, so somebody goes bankrupt, you can sell yourself into indentured servitude so that you have a roof over your head, you have a place to sleep, you have three square meals a day, and you exchange your labor for that uh, set of um, yes. of recompense, right? Like mm-hmm. you know, and then you so that it's a way for you to to be safe and protected while you are destitute. Amy, I'm, I must be missing something. <laughs> what, what's the distinction between slavery and employment? So, right. No, that's right. And so I think it is closer in some ways to minimum wage work, right? That it truly, like, and I'm not trying to apologize for it at all. It just is much closer to working in order to survive. We call it, right, slavery. And and I just think we have a lot of associations with that, that in the ancient Near East, and particularly in ancient Israel, I'm not so sure are apt. But it's not fun, right, to, to, to give up one's liberty. It's, I mean, it's not, a, it's not a good thing. It's not a good situation. But it's one way in the ancient world they dealt with the, inevitable, the inevitability of the inequality uh, in income and the effect of catastrophe on people. I would submit that the difference between this and employment, employment you can quit. Here you can't just get up and leave. Right. Okay. <laughs> That's a major. Right. Was this twenty-four hours as opposed to, in other words, once you did it, you were there. Yes. Yeah. Property. Yes, yourself. you were property. Okay. Exactly. Shabbat. So, um, except Shabbat, right? Shabbat is the great equalizer. Will you hold on to that thought? If I don't come back to it, like do this because mm-hmm. I really want to get back to that point. Elena says, "How could you sell your children?" There are more slaves in the world today than ever before in human history. Today. Right now. Children born into poverty are very likely to wind up as slaves of some kind. Um, Because people are desperate. That's how. Of course, it's unthinkable to us. How wonderful that it's unthinkable to us but you give birth to your eighth child in poverty and you're trying to feed the other seven, it happens. Of course, it would break the heart of any parent and it happens still. Yes. I think about these two systems, then and now, as like ecosystems through like an economic lens. Where is access to power and where is it not? And we're talking about the mechanics of the how right now, like, how people access resources, but and I, I get it. But my takeaway is, oh man, this is just really sad. Mm-hmm. 
It's very like sad. The emotions of it are, is it anything but sad? No. It's sad. It's really sad. But, but I think in our culture, I think about, okay, so who goes back to prison? So do they have three square meals a day? Mm-hmm. Recidivism. A lot of it is about the fact that we don't have a mechanism to have people be able to work and survive without going back to prison, right? So yes, it's, it's incredibly sad that this is the human reality, that we allow inequality to become so extreme that whether it's indentured servitude or needing to be in prison to be fed, or like it, what, yes, it's, it's horrible and it's sad that one would sell one's kid into slavery to try to make ends meet, and you can't feed it. You can't take care of another one. Yes, that's horrifying. Hundred percent. And there was no birth control. Well, women have always used birth control. It's a question of what do we mean when we say birth control? Infanticide is birth control. That was one way. Think about Oedipus. I mean, you you exposed babies, right? There, there was lots of birth control. It doesn't always work. And if it doesn't work, then there are consequences. And there are many societies where it's impossible to practice birth control, where the women are unable to stand. 100%. 100%. There's lots of places where women don't have, right, that option. And if we're not careful, guess where it's going to be? Here. Right here. Mm -hmm. If we're not careful, it's going to be right here. All right. So we're looking at an Ebed Ivri, a Hebrew, right, slave, shall serve six years. And in the seventh year, the person shall go free without payment. All right. If the person came single, they leave single. This is a male we're talking about, mm-hmm. right? Um, if he came single, he leaves single. If he, had, if he had a wife when he got to your, your estate, the wife leaves with him. If the master gave the Eved a wife and the wife has borne the Eved children, the wife and children belong to the master, and the slave shall leave alone. But there's a provision, because you don't want to deny a family the opportunity to stay together. Think about American slavery. There was no choice. The children were sold. The spouse was sold. The master had complete control to destroy the family relationship. Torah saying you can't, you have to give the family an opportunity to stay together and it's not your choice. You can't sell the children. You can't sell the wife. You have to give your Eved the opportunity to maintain the family relationship. So what would that mean? If the slave says, I love my master and my wife and children, I do not wish to go free, the master shall take this person before God. He shall be brought to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall then remain his slave for life. So what does it mean that his master shall take him before God? What does it mean that the master shall take him before God? It is a legal term, right? It is probably not the um, literal meaning, like take him before God. God is, God is everywhere, right? Um, but if you would like me to read my note, the court records from Newsy frequently mention the administering of an oath of the gods taken by a litigant in the presence of, or perhaps by actually holding the figurines of the gods. The phrase before Elohim, an echo of pre-Israelite legal terminology, is in the Torah divested of its original association with gods and most likely simply means in the sanctuary. Probably the slave had to repeat in the presence of witnesses or the local authorities the formal declaration of his intention, uncompelled to forego his freedom. So it's a ritual, right, that's performed um, that... that uh, that originally, and I think probably even here for Israelites, meant it had the authority of being, of, of what is it called? It's it's kind of ratified by, mm-hmm. right, God in the sense that it's bind it's binding. Does that make does that make sense? There's right. a note here, <coughs> here that says that the rabbis interpreted Elohim there not being God but judges. 
that somehow he was brought to make an oath. Right. All right. So um, it's about making it official. This is all about making Mm -hmm. it official. So that's his act. If he doesn't want to leave his family, he can be a slave for life. Yes. <laughs> it's not an hour. And on this note about uh, the master shall pierce his ear with an awl, I remember when I had my ears pierced, my mother was horrified because it referred back. <laughs> That's so funny. not a religious person. But, but your mom knew about this and was like, you do not put holes in your ears. Because, right? All right. So, um, so the, the rabbis also have a lot to say about the ear. And why, why are we piercing the ear? It's because this is unnatural. This is not supposed to happen that you would be a slave forever. You, who I just freed from slavery, are choosing to be a slave forever. The ear that stood at Sinai and just heard God's voice and the Ten Commandments and about living as a free people, that ear is the one that's going to be... Right? Pierced. Jana? I understand what you're saying about that slavery was just, was just how things were, right? Mm-hmm. Because I'm just trying to incorporate that into the concept of choice because this slave's choice is you're either free, but if you want your family, you're not free. So if, mm-hmm. it's like a Sophie's choice. It's not right. like yeah. choice choice. So what's your point? I don't know. I, um, I guess I'm just trying to, I'm trying to understand how could that be a choice. People living in poverty don't have many choices. What choice do they have today? No, but I'm not, but, but from the concept of it's from the Torah. Uh, this is the law. You can stay. It means you stay as a slave. Are you staying or are you leaving? Right, it I'm not trying to defend this. I'm saying, what do you mean there, it's not really a choice? Well, yes, it is. Okay. You either, if you're a slave and you're going to get married and have children in the master's house, you know what that means. It means you're marrying a slave. Do you want to do that? Okay. But it means when you leave, they don't go with you. That, I mean, that's the system. That's what it is. It's horrible. Right? And so... When we talk about choice, what choice do people living in poverty really have? And, I, and I'm not in any way trying to, to make someone who's, who lives in poverty, I'm not trying to diminish in any way the misery of that. There's not a lot of choice. It is such a luxury for us to talk about choices. And we, right, we fail to get that. A lot, I think, right? Which is kind of the point that, that, that we 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 take for granted the fact that we have choices. You, you don't have that when you're right when you've sold yourself into indentured servitude. You have limited your choices. Okay. Here, here's your choice. It sucks. It's terrible, right? But these this is your choice. Okay. The case here, however, is that the master gave the wife to the slave, and there's a sense that, therefore, the master owns the woman and any children. The master does. Right. So this is not if he was married before or right. and brought a wife and children. Part of this is that if the master gives him a wife, he's kind of renting it to him. <laughs> She's not. She's yeah. not free. Right. She's not. To free. Cho- She's not free no, to marry and just go rent an apartment somewhere. <laughs> right. That's not what. That's not what we're talking about here. But there's no provision for her to go with him. Correct. None whatsoever. Correct. He can't do anything. Correct. That's a bummer. That's a bummer. It's a bummer. Talk to me. Talk to me about women today. Talk to me about their choice to go free. Right, right. This master is the ultimate pimp because he is saying, yes, you can service my wife. No, 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 no. He, he, this, this. I own lots of people. Mm. You want to marry someone that I own? Fine. I'm, I'm not going to have sex with her. You are. Uh, okay. I thought it was his It's wife. your, no, it's the slave's wife, right? So the slave marries somebody that the master owns. Yeah. 
When you do that, right. you know that she's not free. She's not okay, do you still want to sleep with her? Mm-hmm. Do you still want to marry her? Do you want to have children with her? Okay, but she's not free. Mm-hmm. The, the consequence is if you want to stay with her, mm-hmm. you have to stay where she is. Exactly, exactly. On, on those terms, right? And, and, as, and it's horrifying. I'm not, it's horrifying. And talk to me about women's freedom. And I will be here for the next three days <laughs> holding forth about women's choices, mm-hmm. right? Women who are married, mm-hmm. who are what free to leave. And I'm talking people in the Palisades. Right. Women who won't leave because their kids are in private school. Mm-hmm. And if she leaves, right? He has complete financial control. He has complete social control. Mm -hmm. And she moves to a a studio apartment and has them sleep. And I've, I've, it's happened here that someone said, I live in a, in a one bedroom apartment. My children sleep in the bedroom and I sleep on the couch Mm -hmm. when they're with me. Mm -hmm. How many women are going to choose that? So, I mean, I think we, we are confronting something horrifying, and if we're honest, it's, it's happening everywhere all the time. The happy side of that is my Guatemalan cleaning lady mm-hmm. was sent by her parents, she was born in a mountain village, sent to Guatemala City to work for wealthy Frenchmen at age 10. Never, um, I mean, I think she had some contact with her parents, but the bottom line was that the Frenchman and his wife were very kind to her. She learned a lot. She somehow got um, to, her life expanded. So, so this is from you, Elena Allen, who asked 10 minutes ago, how could someone sell their child into slavery? I mean, this woman's life improved. But I just want to be clear, what happened is her parents sent her away because they couldn't give her what, right, fill in the blank. Like, I don't, I don't know her exact situation, but, but right, so it, it happened to someone you know. At the age of 10. That her parents, right? Do you want sold her? Like, what, sent her to work? Yeah, they had 12 kids. Okay, so this is... This is you. You've proven exactly what we're talking about. That it happens and, now, and it can be good. And we are the wealthiest country in the history of the world, and it's happening here, right? I'm not sure why you're focusing on that. It can be good. I mean, it can be, but it's rare. it's it's rare. It's rare. Exception. And the deeper issue is the violent patriarchy of then and now. Right. Yes. Who is shackled by that? Right. So we can talk about right. and laud and clap right. the exceptions. You're right. But most of the time it's not. Right. Yes. And that's, that's right. That's exactly right. That and that power dynamic has not changed, right? All that much. Right? Mm-hmm. About who has control over the lives of girls and women and and unfortunately, so much of sex trafficking are boys, mm-hmm. right? Who has control? Who has the power? And it remains, I didn't say it. Our guy over here said it. <laughs> Violently patriarchal. And the flip, Violently the, patriarchal. The flip side of what you said, Elena, is in Los Angeles. In Los Angeles today, there are a lot of women and girls who are literally slaves in homes cleaning the homes I'm not even talking about sexually Uh, there was an exhibit a number of years ago about this and it's a very serious problem warning people to watch out in their neighborhoods if they see girls who never go out and never leave the house Mm -hmm. and some of them were actually sold into that situation by their parents who thought they were coming to become maids, etc., etc. Simon Wiesenthal did that study. Yeah, that was... We, 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 we went to... And they also talked about how they take their passports. Yes. yes. They take any identification. Yes. They cannot leave the house. Right. They have no money. Right. Happens in Beverly Hills. Right. Right now. Carol? The, the woman 
who is given to the guy and has children, she does. She if she worked for six years, she's not going to have a. No. She's not going to be able to go. Mm-mm. You know, with the kids. Right. That hello. <laughs> Back okay. Then. All right. Yeah. That you're right. Yep. All right. Okay. <laughs> Bert. When a man sells his no skin. twelve right. No. 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 Seven. Oh. Seven. No. Seven. Oh, yeah. Okay. I go to twelve if you want. Oh God. Yeah. You're right. <laughs> yeah. This gets worse. It just gets worse. <laughs> <laughs> But there is some redeeming social value here, somewhere. <laughs> when a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not be freed as male slaves are, as male slaves are. If she proves to be displeasing to her master, who designated her for himself, he must let her be redeemed. He shall not have the right to sell her to outsiders since he broke faith with her. And if he designated her for his son, he shall deal with her as is the practice with free maidens. If he marries another, <coughs> he must not withhold from this one her food, her clothing, or her conjugal rights. If he fails her in these three ways, she shall go free without payment. All right, let's be clear on what's happening here. <coughs> Someone is selling their daughter right. into slavery with the intention of her marrying either the master or his son. This is not housekeeping or you're going to be hired as a chef. (laughs) This is somebody who cannot afford to take care of their daughter and provide a bride price for her, or what is it called, a dowry. Mm -hmm. The bride price is the other way. Um, The family can't afford a dowry, which means they can't arrange for a marriage that is going to give her security. So one option is to sell her to a wealthy family mm-hmm. where she will be the wife of either the master or one of his sons. That's the intention here. All right. So that's what Torah's addressing. If this ha- when this happens, right? If the master does not, right, like her, but but he bought her, right, thinking, okay, He buys her at nine, and she doesn't turn out to be what he wants. He must let her be redeemed. Meaning? He can't keep her. If he rejects her. If he rejects her, he, he can't sell her. He can't say, okay, forget about it. I've changed my mind. You, you didn't turn out to be what I thought, so I'm selling you to the Moabites. You can't do that. It's like a money-back guarantee. <laughs> <laughs> because cause what is Torah saying? He broke faith with her. Mm-hmm. It was understood she would have the rights of a wife. Mm-hmm. And that's not going to happen. He can't just sell her. Because her family sold her with a certain intention. Not to just sell her to whoever buys her. Okay. Does she go back to the family or she stays? They can redeem her. Yes. Yes. He shall not have the right to sell her to outsiders since he broke faith with her. And if he designated her for his son, so he bought her for his son... He shall deal with her as is the practice with free maidens. Right? She's to be treated, right, like like a free maiden. If he marries another, so now he he takes her, he's tired of her, he marries somebody else, he cannot withhold from the girl who's been, right, sold into indentured servant uh, into slavery to be his wife he cannot withhold from her food clothing or check sex. this out sex or sex that she has that as a right she has that as a right you gotta love that she is entitled <laughs> to conjugal rights so she might have a son correct right. you cannot withhold children from her mm. Who will be supported by the, the master? Who will be supported by the house? You cannot withhold 
conjugal rights from her. Mm. Yes, Reuben. When a man, the red book says when a man sells his daughter. So it's a parent. The man is the one who has control in ancient Israel. You tell me. <coughs> Dana? So Dana's arguing parent <laughs> means man. she has two parents. One gets to make the decision, but there's another voice. Mm-hmm. Right. I, I mean, along this conversation, I was thinking about that, the female voice allowing, you know, women to be sold and things like that and, and amenable to it because she saw the value in her family having these kind of transactions. Okay. Mamma? Sarah. Huh? Sarah? Sarah. How the story evolved. She had she had she had to say. She she had to say about her thing. Well but but partly I believe Torah has those stories as an exception. Because you know, I think normatively the man would have had complete control and complete power to decide what happens to every member of the household. Now, does the does the mother have the wife have influence? It depends on the situation, right? But absolute power was given to the patriarch. Absolute power of life and death. Hmm. Yeah, Milton Abrams is a good example, is what I'm hearing. No, not <laughs> Abraham. Abraham. I know, but I think Torah's bringing that as a countercultural argument. I don't think it was normative. I don't think Sarah was normative. I, I mean, I, I could be wrong, but I think Sarah's an exception, and I think Torah is pointing out that we shouldn't forget the exceptions, that it's not, that it's not absolute, right? That, it, that there's always exceptions, and there are exceptional stories, and there are exceptional, ma- exceptional marriages, and exceptional families. Do I think that means we, women were completely disempowered in ancient Israel? No. I think, no, I don't think so. But I think... But I don't want to. I don't want to read Sarah as most women's experience either. Don't forget, Sarah did it at Abraham's request to save Abraham's wife. He didn't. When, what? When Sarah said, "I'm his sister." When Sarah said, sister. "Get rid of Ishmael." Oh, you're going back. I think that's what Mehmet's talking about. She made the decision to to. Get rid of Ishmael. Right. Okay. All right. So, um, can you talk about the translation of the <laughs> word Ona? There's a note here in the Eighth Chaim mm-hmm. that says the ancient translations have it as conjugal rights, but that other translations have it as dwelling or as ointment. Yeah. As in makeup. It is generally agreed that Hebrew she'er, literally flesh, is an ancient word for meat, perhaps like lechem, extended to cover food in general. And two, that kesut is certainly clothing. It is the unique word ona mm-hmm. that has generated debate. Mm-hmm. The Septuagint, Pshita, and Targums all understood it to refer to the woman's conjugal mm-hmm. rights. This interpretation, which has no philological support, <laughs> is also found in rabbinic sources. If correct, it would reflect a singular recognition in the laws of the ancient Near East that a wife is legally entitled to sexual gratification. Rashbam and Bechor Shor favor another rendering of Ona as dwelling, shelter, which is supported etymologically by the Hebrew noun Ma'on, or Me'ona, dwelling or habitation. 
Um, a, per, a persuasive, although as yet philologically unsustained argument has been made for understanding the term to mean oil or ointment. In many ancient Near Eastern texts, there are clauses that make provision for food, clothing, and ointment. The same triad of commodities is found in Hosea and Ecclesiastes. That's what I got for you. We don't know. Huh? We, we, we don't know. We pay. But I... I choose choose to read it as she has a right to sexuality. She has a right to reproduction. She has a right that because you're tired of her, you can't withhold from her. Right? And think about Leah. Right? Leah buys a night with Jacob. Remember? Uh, By giving Rachel the fertility treatment right and so she trades right but because it was right so she has a right to to Yaakov's uh, sexual attention even though she is unloved don't you think the senior women play a much bigger role than was suggested in the text say again the senior women the the, the wife wife to wife would play a much bigger role in decisions affecting enslaved women. I mean, I would imagine she has the the wife has a significant amount of power. Yes, over the women slaves in the household for sure. Uh, I think one of the things that women slaves would have to contend with is the animus or the unpredictability or the kindness of the senior women. For sure, mm-hmm. for sure. What we have are the laws, right? We don't have the untold story that Dana wants to lift up, right? And that you're lifting up. We don't have that. These are the laws. This is what we know was the legal ramifications of the system, right? The social ramifications, we can even see in the Sarah Hagar narrative, right? That Sarah treats Hagar horribly when she's, right? When she's in your language animated you know by right hostility right and we don't know what happened there something happened right because she starts to abuse Hagar and one could guess it has something to do with Avraham sure right like because then she says this is your fault (laughs) to Abraham so right for sure I think that that would have been the reality whereas the social constructs continue to change from seeing how the law has changed from then to now, the human characteristics of men and women, I think, probably have remained more constant. So for us to think that women would sit silently by and let these things happen without tremendous influence would be erroneous. I don't know that I would go so far as to say tremendous. I just don't. I just think if we go to other places in this world today, women don't have a voice and they don't have tremendous influence on what happens. I just, I think that's the reality. And the, I, that's, that's my opinion. But I think... I haven't spent a lot of time in some Middle Eastern countries, but I have spent a lot of time in India and the Far East. And I see women who appear to be very docile and quiet, but privately, they are so far from that. I'm not suggesting they're docile. I just am not ready to use tremendous influence as a norm, I think. Influence. Maybe. Tremendous. Maybe. Or she gets hit and told to go. I don't know. I don't know. But I... I don't know. I'm, maybe I'm just way more pessimistic and cynical about the position of women in this world. But I think in so many places, women in this world do not have a lot of influence over their own fates and over their own lives. And I wish it were different. And I wish, okay, it looks like that, but behind the scenes, really, she, she runs things. I, but I just don't think that's true. Sure. Not on the female I think that some societies put women in certain roles, but there are always women speaking out against those those stereotypes. Okay, I'm going to try not to dig in here, but I have to say, I think gender plays a part 
in the power dynamic that shuts women down and shuts them up. That's right. I think gender plays a part in that. Yes, it does. Right? But I don't think it stops the power dynamic. Oh, no. I... Stop. You know, I, I, I don't, I don't, I don't want to dig in here. So, <laughs> somebody want to say something? I actually thought your sentence was going to end when you said tremendous. I thought the next word was anxiety. <laughs> <laughs> but to hear influence, it is no. male privilege, male privilege, male privilege, you got male it. privilege. Forever. That's the way it has been. That is the way it is it's today. Truly. And, I completely disagree. It's tremendous power or influence. I think tremendous anxiety. Mm-hmm. Okay. But and, and right. Can I say something. Yes. I think of my mother-in-law. Uh-oh. And the guts that this woman had. She marched for the women who were killed in the Triangle Fire. Wow. And whatever the laws of the land would be, I see her as a rebel. So I think there is that kernel somewhere that is kept alive by good genes. I don't even know where to go right, right. Um, so I'm, I don't know that I'm going to go to jeans but I so I so I think the reality that we're talking about doesn't in any way denigrate women or right what it 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 it, it, it we can assume there have always been feisty women, rebels, who refused and either got murdered for it or beaten for it or ignored for it or changed the world as a result of it, right? All, all, all of the above. There have always been feisty women who refused to shut up and, like, and be put in their place. The punishments for that have been enormous and severe and sometimes <laughs> fatal, um, and so, yeah, so, so, yes, I think there is that within all of us, right, that has the capacity to hold even, like, really re- restrictive realities and say, nah, or I'm going to push as far as I can against it, for sure, and thank God, and men who push against it, and men who say this is unjust, and men who say we're going to change the laws and change the system, 100%, right? Um, I guess we'll just... Back to the Be portion. glad about that. Yeah. Yeah. Are going to get to 22? Yeah, right. To change the subject. At least, at the very least. The 613 laws, what is the law that comes out of this? That, uh, is this included in the 613? And what is... Not all the laws of the Torah are applicable today. Ah, okay, thank you. Um, and many of them can only be performed in the land of Israel. If you're a sovereign in the land of Israel, which we are now, right? Um, but so, so, many of, so many of them are not things a regular Jew living in Brooklyn can do. Um, and the, the, over, the overarching rabbinic law the one that trumps everything else is Dina de Malchuta Dina, which is the law of the land is the law. What, wherever we live, Dina de Malchuta Dina, you have to live according to the law of the land that you live in. If the law is I have to work on Shabbos, I have to work on Shabbos. That's one of the 613. That's one of the rabbinic laws, not from Torah. Because in Torah they were sovereign in the land of Israel, presumably, right? Like, but once, once we live in the diaspora, dina demachuta dina, you have to follow the law of the land. So that right, right there, that that takes, oh, right, that takes precedence over many of the laws that we actually see in. Torah. One more thing, and then we're going to move on. Yes. Okay. Um, number eleven. If, she, if, she, if he fails to these these three ways, she shall go free without payment. Yes. What is she supposed to do? That he just says. In other words, that's really he could do that. <laughs> he could throw her out. 
She shall go free. Free to do what? She's no longer a slave. She's no longer a slave. Go back to her family. Oh, to go back to her family. Well, I mean, whatever she, whatever she's, but but of course, it's not a happy situation, right? Um, but I do, like Bert said, I do want to look at verse twenty-two <laughs> through twenty-four. Or maybe, okay, let's look at 20. I do want to look at 22, and you'll see why. When men fight, and one of them pushes a pregnant woman, and a miscarriage results, but no other damage ensues, the one responsible shall be fined according as the woman's husband may exact from him the payment to be based on reckoning. But if other damage ensues, the penalty shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. Why did I want to read this? <laughs> Two men are fighting. Mm-hmm. A pregnant woman is injured. Mm-hmm. As a result, she miscarries. Mm-hmm. What happens? Baby dies. The baby the, dies. The baby, the baby. What's the punishment? Money. Money. Yeah. What is the punishment not? Death. Yeah. The punishment is not death. Okay? Why am I bringing this? Abortion. How does it relate to abortion? It's not a life. It is not, not the fetus is not, not a life. Yeah, it's not a life. It's an attachment. It is an attachment to the right. woman. Right. And if the baby dies as a result of a miscarriage, then the husband is paid damages as if you had injured his wife. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, so people who want to say that they are basing their argument against abortion on the Bible have not read the Bible. That's true. So just so you know, (laughs) so if I kill somebody, the punishment to me is death. Mm -hmm. Right? Nefesh lenefesh, a soul for a soul, a, a person for a person. If I kill someone, I am put to death. If I cause, as a man, I cause the miscarriage of a woman so the fetus dies, I am not put to death. What does that prove? That proves that Torah law does not consider the fetus the same as As a a person's life. Life is breath. It's still not. Is it connecting? I'm I'm just thinking, so the fetus becomes a living being... Yes. First breath. Yes. Crowning. Not in the seven, not in the eighth one. No. 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 It is still a fetus. She and if it dies, she the person who causes it has to pay damages to her husband. Just as if he had harmed her. Yeah? So the tour doesn't go into no. No. no, no, until crowning, it's a fetus. Where do these people Right. Where do they draw it from? So part of the problem is the Septuagint, the the translation into Greek of this text, monkeys with the text. <laughs> And so there is a mistranslation. But if you read the Hebrew, it is very clear that the fetus is not a human being and does not incur the death penalty. So we assume there is no one in the Vatican to read Hebrew. So, right. That's right. That's right. Is the Greek translation post-Christianity? No. No. It's a translation by Jews living in Arizona. Correct. Correct. So the Bible does believe in capital punishment. Of course. Of course. All right. Does intention come in here? I mean, I murder somebody. I intended to murder them, but if by chance the lady is pregnant and receives a kind of lateral wound, I didn't intend necessarily that she she should lose the baby. It seems to not matter. 
I mean, I, I think this is assuming it's not intentional, but we don't get, but if he pushed her on purpose to cause a miscarriage, now he's killed. We don't get that. So it doesn't seem to matter. The fetus mm-hmm. is, is a part of the woman, and so the punishment is damages. Mm-hmm. And let's be clear when we say eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. It is not literal. Mm-hmm. It says Lex Talionis. This is to say the punishment must fit the crime. That if I harm Elena, and Elena is a noble woman, which she is, of course. Um, if, if I harm her as a peasant, my punishment is no different than if I harm the schlepper Sheldon. <laughs> when I said Gloria protests. Right. So that is what eye for an eye means, right? Is that that Elena's eye is as valuable as Sheldon's regardless of their station or status and regardless of my station or status. That is a radical new way to look at things in the ancient world. It mattered if the person you harmed was of a certain station and you weren't. You could be killed for causing a bruise or a wound. You could be killed or your child could be killed as punishment. This is saying, "Mm -mm." mm-mm. Wound for wound, burn for burn, eye for... It should be based... Your punishment can only be based on the crime itself. Everybody's foot is equal in value. That is different from other ancient Near Eastern realities and law codes. So I think we, we, we get caught up in thinking this is literal. But it can't be, say, the rabbis. Because let's say I only have one eye. And I injure your eye. You're going to take my only eye and that's retributive justice? No. So the rabbis say it can't have been literal. Because that would not be retributive justice. Right? That would be completely... Now I'm blind. I didn't blind you. Mm-hmm. I compromised your eyesight. So, so the, the rabbis argue it, it could never have been taken literally. It is meant to say that it is um, equal. All right, that everybody's equal. All right, so you have from me, yeah? Let's look, at, let's look at what some of the rabbis have done with this. Right? So we get that this is right after being freed from slavery, Right? As with other troubling texts, it may help to see the rules of slavery in their historical context. Among the regulations, we find that slaves are to serve for six years and be freed in the seventh. Go down to the next paragraph. The explanation of the laws of slavery in the Mechilta, one of the oldest works of the Midrash, makes it possible for us to understand how a slave might choose to remain with a master rather than go free. For example, the Mechilta tells us a Hebrew slave must not wash the feet of his master, nor put his shoes on him, nor carry his things before him when going to the bathhouse. This is from Tractate Nezikin. All right. So what is that about? It goes on to say that even those things a student or a son might do for the master should not be done by the slave. Slaves were to be used for economic purposes, not for creature comfort. So the Mechilta goes further than the law as we have it Mm -hmm. to say that the indentured Hebrew slave was not supposed to do things for the master, like anything for the master. If you were brought into the home to do manual labor, that's what you did. You don't carry their stuff for them. (laughs) Your son might have to carry your stuff, but not your slave. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Right, you're hired for your labor, not to do whatever the master decides this afternoon. Mm -hmm. Right, it's not my personal, you know, person to lackey to, to, to do whatever I want to make my life more comfortable. It's I'm hiring you essentially for your labor. 
Right. Then the Mechilta tells us, just as a hired man cannot be forced to do anything other than his trade, so also a slave cannot be forced to do anything other than his trade. If the slave came into service as a barber, tailor, butcher, or baker, he works at that trade for his master, and the master cannot compel him to change his occupation. Right. That is a different understanding of an indentured laborer than what happens when we hear the word slave. Okay. Not that they didn't have them. They did. <laughs> All right. The, the slave also uh, has regular hours, right? So that you couldn't like work them all night long. They got Shabbos. Like the rest of the Israelites, you can't, you cannot make someone work on Shabbos. Coming back to my point, Micha Goodman, I think it was, who taught us at Hartman, said, Oh, I'm not going to get it right. Um, it was very, it, was, it like blew my mind though. It was like, th- th- how do we, how do we enact justice? It's not about labor. How we enact justice as Jews is about rest. Mm-hmm. Right? That, that the, we tend to think about controlling people's labor or what they do, right? The, I'm not getting it exactly right, but he was saying the way that we create a just society as Hebrews is based on rest. That everyone is entitled to rest. Right? And the way... Huh? You build on that? Like, what is it about rest that's so transformational? That's the key, is that they get to recreate and... And like you, they, they are like you on Shabbat. Yes. They are like you, the master. Just as you get to rest, they get to rest. And that, that that's kind of revolutionary in terms of thinking about equalizing people is not about work, it's about rest. For, for us, right, as a people, They're, they will imitate you. You will enact and even maybe enforce, right? rest on Shabbat for everybody who is in your control. Yeah? Yeah. All right. What do we do with this today? Surely it does not call for a reinstitution of slavery, mm-hmm. nor does it matter much to us today whether our ancestors were more humane than their Egyptian masters had been. Mm-hmm. It is possible, however, to read between the lines. Is it possible, however, to read between the lines and find a metaphor for our own lives? So the rabbis love to take these texts of Torah that no longer really speak to us as legal texts, but they don't want to give up on them in terms of saying, okay, so now it's completely irrelevant. Now it's going to be a metaphor. All right, well, if we read this as metaphor, what the heck are you... Okay, the text says six years shall the slave serve. We just read that. Teaching us that each human being has a limited productive life. In the seventh year, he shall go out free, reminds us that we are mortal. If he came in by himself, meaning, so what's the metaphor? You work for six years and then you're free. Meaning we have a limited time of production. If we're reading this as metaphor, there's a limited time that we're productive. Then we have a different kind of life. We go free, right? Um, It's sabbatical. Well, that we're mortal, right? So going free here might mean what? Death. Okay. If he came in by himself, the text tells us, right? So what does that mean? That means we can live on our own or we can search for spirituality, a life of Torah. He shall go out by himself. Tells us that if we do not live with spirit, then we die without it, right? If we come, if we come without it and don't get it, then we're going to go out without, without, it. without it. Exactly. If he is married... One might think of the Kabbalistic view of the marriage between God and Israel and realize that we can have an intimate bond with God and if we do, then his wife shall go out with him through our lives and perhaps beyond. God is with us if we are with God. So if if going out is about dying, the wife goes out with him, right? So that if if we acquire a relationship with the divine, that goes with us. And actually, I do really like that metaphor right that right I watch people die all the time and I can tell you there's a very big difference between people who die 
with a sense of being connected to God Mm -hmm. or some kind of understanding of spirit and people who don't. There's a, there's a, I have watched a piece and there's something different when people are, are clear, right? That they are moving into another kind of relationship Mm -hmm. with reality, capital R. Mm -hmm. If his master has given him a wife and she has borne him children, children are our legacy, Here it can be read metaphorically. We will leave the work of our hands behind in the form of students who learned from us or in the products we created. The text acts, I can never do an X next to an SK. The text asks us if we do this of our own volition or only because of the taskmaster that stands over our shoulder. If only because of the taskmaster, then the wife and the children shall belong to the master and he shall go out by himself. When we do the work to do the work, we leave children. We leave a legacy. When we do the work because of the taskmaster standing over us, we go out alone. The taskmaster owns right all the work. Um, somebody was just saying to me the other day that um, that they were having a crisis in terms of being a Jewish leader because they realized they were only doing it for the paycheck, and they felt they didn't have the right to serve anymore if they were only doing it for the paycheck. So it's like, you know, that, that sense of if the labor is labor that comes from you and you're contributing, it's, a, it's something fundamentally, existentially different than if you're only doing it for the, and I'm, I'm not going to quit even if I'm only, but I'm just saying, um, I'm still doing it, but I need the paycheck. But like, it, but, um, but the, the sense that if it's only for that, does it fundamentally and existentially change Right, the the quality of what of what is produced. If he says, "I will not go out free," he acknowledges the importance of spirituality, of faith, and of Torah in their life. Then he shall ever remain close to God and serve God, not for six years, not necessarily only in his lifetime, but forever. The Haggadah tells us to remember that we were slaves. Perhaps Parshat Mishpatim can help us envision that as well. When we live our lives devoid of holiness, we are slaves to the void. When we live in God, we are not void, but avadim, which can mean slaves or can mean servants to the Holy One. Then we are able to say, I love my master and wish to always continue in your service. Shabbat Shalom. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday Morning Torah Study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.